Welcome to Essential Conversations. I'm your host, Rebecca Mears, with my co-host, Luca Halex. And it is delightful to be in the studio again. It's been a very long time since we were live here. What a month or so we've had. Yes, it's been busy and we've both been out of town and back in again and pre-recorded some of our shows so that we could still be here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we get started today, I'll, I'll start by grounding in to acknowledge that we are broadcasting from the unceded ancestral territory of the Coast Salish peoples, the Squamish, the Musqueam, the Coquitlam, and the Tsleil-Waututh. And what that means to me as a settler um, is that it is my place to stop and to think and to recognize the impact that myself and ancestors have had. And the fact that unceded means that we just kind of moved in and squatted. And, um, this and we're is, still squatting. We are guests here. Are, are we behaving as guests is the question at the forefront of my mind. Um, we are here today with our guest today, Connie Jorsvik. Hello. Hello. She is as tall as me, folks. Not that anybody listening knows that I'm tall because you just hear my voice. But <laughs> You've got a tall voice. I've got a, have I got a tall voice? I don't know what that sounds like. A lot of people in radio have are very tiny. Yes. Well, we're, we're coming at it with all of it, right? <laughs> Woo! Big voice, big spirits, big bodies. Connie is the founder of Patient Pathways, and she is a senior healthcare navigator. And we connected into you through a long lineage of other people who we've had on the show. And I'll let Luca explain that well, one. We, yeah, we were just talking about how wonderful it is when we have people on the show um, and how we got to you. And so we got to you because um, one of our other guests on the show, Carrie Phillips, uh, works with you. Yes. And she lives across the street from my brother. So that was how <laughs> I met her. And then she introduced us to you or introduced me to you and uh, she also introduced us to Mark Watson whom we've also had on the show so so we you're in you're in great in a great community here mm-hmm. so welcome to the show it's Thank great you to so have much. you here with us mm-hmm. I'm always interested in everybody's story and especially people and almost everybody is this way these days when you've started in one career in one profession and then you've then you've um, segued into another one from there and the the hows of how we do that and what's going on in our lives and and what's inspiring to us or what it is that we're moving away from is always really fascinating to me because you've moved into a field that is groundbreaking um, in the sense that there aren't a lot of other people doing it. It, it is as niche as it gets. It's, it's <laughs> niche mm-hmm. and and probably won't stay niche because the baby it's, boomers are aging and so we're going to have this huge elderly population right. and and not just elderly people because and I'll let you tell us about yeah. <laughs> who, who your population is and who you deal with but but we, but you were telling us as we arrived here that you started out studying forensic psychology forensic psychology here at is, Simon Fraser University yes, yes. And you said oh, I went here many moons ago so get, tell us a little bit about what that what that pathway has been for you to get to where you are now Well, I'll start with a little bit of a story that there's a a tattoo that my children 
are pushing and screaming that for me not to have. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like you want to have it. I want yeah. to have it. Um, it's, it's amour fati, embrace fate. And um, I want to have it on the radial pulse of my, uh, of my left hand so I can see it all the time. I have so many friends. I, I, I embrace people who are younger than me as friends. Um, and they're in their 30s and 40s, and they go, I don't understand what the point of all this work is. I don't understand why this is so difficult. And sometimes we don't know for a really long time why it's why we have to have taken the difficult steps that we had to take. Um, and so I started off, uh, I all of this death work or pre-death work that I do is um, started when I was very, very little. I was by the time I was five years old, I went to three open casket funerals. And so death was not unusual to me. It wasn't something that was hidden behind doors. I was lifted up to look into my grandparents' coffins. And then when I was five years old, I was walking my grandmother to the uh, dining room table for lunch, and she collapsed and had a stroke at my feet, which would be her last stroke. And at that moment, I knew that I was going to be a nurse. So I was a nurse for 25 years. There was absolutely no question that I was going to be a nurse. Uh, I did all sorts of kinds of nursing, and then I became a cardiac nurse. And during that time, I was, we didn't call it being an advocate at that point, but I was always an advocate for my patients. And I often got into trouble along the way with management because I was advocating for my patients. It wasn't in your job description. It wasn't in my job description, right. That little segue into forensic psychology is just the warped kind of place that my mind likes to go every once in a while. I'm not sure that that, that, that was just a detour. <laughs> but well, but I, I'm convinced that nothing like that is ever wasted. Oh, I deal with difficult people all the time. And if I hadn't taken that in those courses, it would have been much more difficult to, to deal it's, with them. It's the fascination, the curiosity of how another vastly different mind works. Yes. So absolutely that will serve you mm-hmm. yes. right, wherever you go. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because I'm, I don't have a brain that I'm highly empathetic, and so to to try and understand a brain that in the criminal world is highly unempathetic is I found really fascinating, and it, and it's become very important to my work. Um, I kind of just wish I had finished my degree. <laughs> well, life's not over yet. Exactly. <laughs> I just watch it on TV. And um, and then I became very ill myself. And we were talking just before the show started about that age 38 to 42 thing. And, and I became very ill around the age of 40 to 42. Those 12-hour day, n- days and night shifts um, were really doing me in. I was a self, I was a single mom. Mm-hmm. So I transitioned to um, Uh, to management and then I started finding out that I was really good at problem solving for other people Mm -hmm. so one of my very first cases was a co-worker whose mom and dad had ended up in two different hospitals at the same time and I and it was killing the families to be separated to, to two different hospitals and I managed to get them into the same hospital 
not only the same hospital within 24 hours, but in the same room. And I, hmm, there's got to be something to this. <laughs> there's got to be a job in this. And so that's when I discovered that this is a pretty big job in the United States. It's a really massively growing field, advocacy. Mm -hmm. And I did my training and built my first website by myself, and that was almost exactly seven years ago. So you had to go down to the U.S. to train in this, or did no, you? No, I no. just did it by, um, there's an organization. Self-directed learning. Self-directed learning. Uh, an organization called APHA, A-P-H-A, mm. and they do a lot of training, and mm. they have um, helped uh, make one of the first international certification courses. Um, and so anybody who is in this um, business, I highly recommend that they become um, board-certified advocates. So do you have to have a nursing background or a medical background in order to go into this? What I do, um, we help people who are with complex and serious illness navigate the healthcare system. And I can't imagine not having uh, the vocabulary amongst other things. Um, I'm and not understanding the system because you've worked in it and you know right. how it operates. There right? are a huge number of people who are out there advocating for friends and families and loved ones who've turned it into businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they learn their own, their own vocabulary, their own systems and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are people who work with head injuries and people who are, work with disabilities of all different sorts. There are people who are advocates for the Alzheimer's Society and all of those different kinds of fields. Mm. I can't imagine doing what we do specifically with, crit with critical illness without some kind of, uh, of medical, medical background. background. Mm -hmm. What was the training you said you did or the certification that you were referring to? I'll tweet that out just in case anybody's curious um, about looking it up. It's board certified uh, I'm sorry I should That's have been prepared for that <laughs> but it's through apha.com okay I'll find it up all right we'll send out the link so for any of you who are listening to us that you, who would like to have those links we tweet stuff out all during the program on Twitter obviously we're tweeting on Twitter <laughs> um Twi oh, we, got, we got a little bird out there. We squeeze its tail. <laughs> yeah, and it, it makes noises. Code. Yeah. So you can find us at EssentialConv, which is Essence, T-I-A-L-C-O-N-V. So I, we invite you to come on over there and take a look. Sometimes we put photographs up and uh, people show and tell and links to songs and, and in this case, how to find AFA. Right. So that's, that's great. So you d decided not just to do this, but to set up your own business. Yes. Which is another, I mean, talk about a transition from nursing to administration, but to go from administration to running your own business is a whole new set of skills because mm. now you're a sole proprietor. So I didn't know what I was getting into, which was <laughs> probably, probably a good, good thing, thing, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love the honesty of that statement right there. Because you get in and it's like, holy cow, what I, have I got myself into it's, here? It's kind of like being a, when you get pregnant yeah. and people yeah. tell you. Can't go backwards. That, you know, you have no idea. And you go, yeah, right, whatever. <laughs> and then, it's just the way you did it. <laughs> and then you have small children and people say, just wait for those teen years. And then you think, oh, okay. 
so I actually hit that um, plateau, that that next huge step in the last year. You know, they say it takes two to three years for your business to become established. And then at about the five-year mark, things really start to transition. And that's where I am now. Um, And I've actually had to, unfortunately, um, close my practice at the moment because it has become so big. And um, I'm transitioning to other things. But I want to back up a little bit in that, you know, that Amor Fati saying is that I probably was an entrepreneur since I was about four or five years old as well. Mm -hmm. And so I had little businesses on the side and I was learning how to grow things. Mm -hmm. For anybody out there who is interested in this kind of work, I would highly recommend an entrepreneur school before you Mm -hmm. to dive deep into this because I know my subject matter. But I am not all that well trained in business. The business yeah. side of the yeah. business is where. And there's a, there's a difference too between being an entrepreneur and being a small business person. Yes. Being an entrepreneur is doing small business in something that hasn't been done before, or in a way it has not been done before. Right. 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 So you're doing you're doing both. Right. And that's a that's a big step to right. take, and it's a steep, steep learning curve. Right, even learning how to do your books, um, yep. but how to market, how to network, all those kinds of things, so that you hit the ground running rather than crawling, which I certainly <laughs> did the first two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big learnings that you've taken away from that? Um, I would go back to school first before I did this um, to to understand have a basic business sense. Um, but I, I also wonder how much if I would have backed out sooner if I if I knew what I what I needed to know. Mm-hmm. I've just I've just gotten in so deep that there's no turning back, and that's kind of a good place to be. I'm now unemployable. Way, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean. Join the club. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we say well, yeah, because you know I've been out on my own since 1990. So I definitely get it. Like, yeah, there is a way in which, you know, you, you put a, 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 a resume together and it, like, mm-hmm. you haven't been employed by anybody. Mm-hmm. But well, there's a whole bunch of other skills that you've got that yeah, and it's not just that too, are incomparable. That when we know how to manage something, how to create something from mm-hmm. scratch, it's very hard to then come in and not be the one that's in charge of making things run. Right. <laughs> yeah, being, being autonomous. Cause yes. There's, yeah. 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 And I think one of the, you know, there's, uh, I've learned how to care for myself, but I think the self-care for anybody who's self-employed is probably one of the steepest learning curves. Oof, yes. Before Um, you burn out. Before you burn out. And and I've burnt out, you know, been on the edge of burnout three or four times Mm -hmm. and just, you know, pulled right back. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's recognizing the signs of potential burnout that are huge, huge thing and why it's happening. Yeah. And so, actually, one of the reasons that it always happens for me is that I have those difficult personality types that come in and they just strangle my soul. And I think that anything would be better, including working at Tim Hortons, than than dealing with people like that. Yeah, and you're you're getting your clients are coming to you when they are stressed out, the worst the times max, of their lives, right? Yeah, and also the people who come in who have the skills to be able to do what you're doing need some degree of mentoring. Yes, um, because you've been doing this for a long time and have pioneered what you're doing, and they're coming in with you, right? Yes. They haven't been doing it 
well, they might have been doing it on their own, but not exactly the same as how you're doing it. Right. right. So that's a whole, there's a whole leadership piece in there, right? Right. The, how do you lead, mentor? Um, and how to be a leader and not a boss, or how to be yeah. a boss when you need to be. And yeah. those are different skills that... Yeah. that I'm not used to as well. Yeah. When it was just me, yeah. I didn't have to do those kinds yeah. of things. But mm-hmm. bringing yeah. people on board, sometimes I have to be really firm. And yeah. um, and that that's hard. And it's not my nature. And also from a business where you do everything when you start. And we've talked to many people on the show about you know, that you do everything. And then you get to a point where there's too much business. You can't do everything anymore. And you have to start ceding control um, to uh, other people. Yes. Within your group, right? Yes. And what what do you what do you seed and when? Um and and how much and uh Well there are all sorts of things tricky. that are there because not only do you need to multiply yourself two or three times, but you also need the money to be able to hire those other people to mm-hmm. in order to grow and that's one of the biggest challenges that yeah. I have is number one, letting go of the purse strings when I need to. Yeah. And uh, recognizing that that somebody else will actually make more money. Right. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Um, It's a little bit tangential, but pulling from something you said a minute ago, where self-care for the self-employed is Mm -hmm. one of the most important and biggest learning curves. What have you learned works for you? Hmm. Uh, Number one is listening to myself. Um, When there is a huge deadline, and but I'm just really tired and when I get sucked into the TV coma um, thing in the evenings that that tells me that there's that the tank is empty Mm -hmm. Um, so I tend to listen to that a lot more Um, I have to I have to exercise I just have to walk all the time Uh, that certainly is a huge piece of it and sleep is absolutely massive um, I have to get my eight or nine hours, and it's really hard to let go of that or, or to let sleep go when you've got deadlines coming up. But I have found over and over again that when I push that envelope and keep on pushing that envelope, then I crash, and then I'm not good to anybody. No, no, and then you lose whatever you think you gained by giving up the sleep and giving up the exercise and giving up the lunch that you should have eaten to restoke your... right engine. And, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's certainly things that are, you know, that bubble bath and, and those kinds of things, but there are things that mm-hmm. backfire. Yeah. Um, that glass of wine at the end of the day mm-hmm. backfires as much as it feels like a really good thing to do. Yeah. And um, I've learned to shut off on Saturdays, no matter how much there is to do. Um, and if I can't shut off, off on a Saturday, such as tomorrow, I will shut off on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I just, re- no matter how much there is to do, I refuse mm-hmm. to even open an email or open a text and that is a huge thing yeah yeah wow and that's a boundary that yes, one's a boundary the other it's, ones it's are, it for are very i mean they're boundaries for your own mm-hmm. self mm-hmm. that one is the boundary to the rest of the team or the yep. connection to the work which when you're mm-hmm. so passionate about it mm-hmm. it's really really hard yes mm-hmm. to hold mm-hmm. yes because it feels like you're letting a child just cry yeah. in the other room or something like that. Well, you know and, what I mean? Yeah. You mentioned that you're an empath, and we've talked about this before, that mm-hmm. when you're an empath, you, do, you feel everything. Right. So if you're setting a boundary for yourself and 
uh, somebody else wants or needs you in that time, you can feel their distress. Yes. So part of that self-care package is learning how to manage being an empath. Yes, absolutely. Um, because you don't want it to go away because part of the reason you're so good at what you do is because you're empathic. Right. I, I've actually noticed that when I hit that wall and I haven't taken care of myself or if I have difficult people who are psychological vampires, mm-hmm. um, that I quit feeling for other people. And I find it an absolutely horrible and disgusting feeling. Mm-hmm. I remember one night um, my daughter, you know, I thought if my daughter walked through the door right now and she was bleeding to death, I wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that was a very That's serious That's a sign problem. of burnout. Yes, for you. Extreme. Definitely. I yeah, can't yeah, imagine yeah, yeah. people wanting yeah. to live their lives yeah. like that. But <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So what's your dream for, because you, you, you have said to me that uh, our healthcare system is in dire straits. Yes. Um, but you're, I know, an optimist. Yes. And you wouldn't be doing all of this work if you didn't believe that it could be better. Right. So what's what's the dream that you have that keeps you going through all of this? When I was a maternity, when I was um, finishing up my um, nursing degree, I was a maternity student for a little while. And that was the end of the 1970s. Um, And we we would have women laboring in cold, sterile rooms. Uh, for as long as it took and then they would have to push and we would put them on these stretchers while they're pushing and run them down the halls and then put them on these horrible contraptions and have their feet up in stirrups for as long as it took to push and they would have these beautiful little babies and we would keep them in the nursery all bundled up and we took them out on a cart en masse every four hours whether the babies wanted to eat at two hours or six hours and we just took them out and we gave the babies to the moms for half an hour and then we took them back. The Lalesh League and Lamaze changed that whole dynamic within two years. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it was a groundswell movement and that was empowered patients taking control of their lives. It actually brings me goosebumps to think about that, but that's <laughs> me too. Yeah. That's what we need to be doing right now. As as the baby boomers, we must take control of our own health. We have to realize that the only way to have a good our good elder years and good deaths, um, because one hundred percent of us are going to die, mm-hmm. is um, is to take control of our own health. To be responsible, we've got patient rights, which we must ask that are honored, but we also have patient responsibilities. And so that means looking after our own health. That means um, quitting things that are harming us and being responsible for planning ahead for our our own um, end of life. So I think that there are there are a lot of people who say, I, this is just such a huge mountain, or how are you going to move it? Mm-hmm. But if 10% of us really want to make that change, I think that we're going to move that mountain. I saw a statistic the other day, and they said that if if 3% of the population does something differently or asks for something different, the, the um, totality has to do something. That's, they can't tolerate 3% dissent. 
Right. And I think that that's what that 3% We forget is. how powerful we are. That 3% is happening right now with yep. medical assistance mm-hmm. in dying. And that 3% mm-hmm. of people are now dying with, and with MAID. And yep. so that, it's done several things during to do that whether you believe in made or not what it's done is shown that people have the right to have the end of life that they want to so for for people who aren't familiar with that term what does made stand for medical assistance in dying which has been mm-hmm. in place for three and a half years now as a constitutional right for people who are who are um, suffering grievously uh, where it will never go away and now it has Um, there's been a massive change in the last three weeks across the country with with, uh, new laws or... uh, And that's at the federal level or the provincial level? Provincial level. Provincial level, because health is handled at a provincial level in Canada. So in Quebec and now in British Columbia, there have been two rulings saying that it's unconstitutional to deny people the right to end their own lives um, if unless their death was reasonably foreseeable. And so that has just changed in the last couple of weeks, and it's just absolutely massive because there are a lot of people who are really, really suffering, Mm -hmm. and um, that's going to change everything. But what it's doing is making doctors uh, and the medical system realize that people are in charge of their lives. Mm -hmm. And until now, there's been a really, um, there's still been a very paternalistic view. Yeah, that's the traditional system that that was training doctors, right? Right, right. So the doctors weren't empowered to empower their patients. Right. So it wasn't a collaboration. Mm -hmm. It was... I'm the doctor, everything's on my shoulders, I I have to make all the decisions. The patient doesn't really get informed or they don't they're not empowered. That's right. So we're th- that's shifting. And I think yeah. that it's going to be another 10 years or so as, until all of these older doctors have mm-hmm. have shifted out of the system until we really yeah. see a big substantive change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is your dream. Yes. That we're going to start um, getting involved and taking responsibility for our own health. Right. And deaths. Exactly. And you and I talked about this previously as well, is that um, we're in a society where we haven't wanted to look at death. And we haven't seen it as a natural part of our lives. And that was really taken away from us starting in the 1970s and 1980s. When I was a brand new grad, we had to get an order to in order to resuscitate somebody. And then it was not very long after that that there was an order that you didn't resuscitate somebody. So now Mm -hmm. everybody is resuscitated unless there's an order to do otherwise. And so we believe we have this false sense that we can be saved at all costs. And Mm -hmm. what I I coach and I I ask people to um, think about is what does that mean? Because people think that they'll go back to. And what are the costs? Yeah. Really? We're not going to go back to the way we were before, whatever that before was. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that people are looking for that one last dance with their mom or dad. They're looking for mm-hmm. that, you know, for mom or dad to make it to a wedding, They're mm-hmm. to hold the baby. And sometimes those things are unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've talked to a number of seniors who've said, I want to go now, but my family doesn't want to let me go. Yes. 
um, and they won't talk to me about it. Yes. Because it's, they can't conceive of me not being here. Right. Um, so it can, it's, it can come up from both ends, right? Sometimes the person wants to die, and the family isn't ready to let them go yet, and sometimes the um, family wants to let the person go, but the person believes that they can be resuscitated and, and mm-hmm. can keep going and stave off death forever. It's it's a lot of it's very cultural mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. um, and we're trying to break into the different cultures as well to mm-hmm. to say it's okay to talk about this. Mm-hmm. I've been at so many bedsides at the end of life where the doctors are practically trying to wring it out of families. Um, what are you sure he didn't say anything? about what he would want at the end of his life. Are you sure that this is what she wanted at the end of her life? And families were just, it was, it's absolutely a a closed subject. Yeah. And it shows a lot about, I think, the health of the family as well. Because I think sometimes, you know, one faction of the family will will know and they'll have had the conversation and another faction won't know. And then then you've got uh, that inner tension within the family around what mom or dad wanted or grandma wanted or and I think that this is a time in our lives like there are really huge pieces in our lives and one of them is having children of our own Mm -hmm. but what people don't expect is how difficult having their parents die is going to be and and for uh, for people especially with dementia that's a really long slow road it can be 8 10 12 years mm-hmm. of that caregiving and grieving and and stuff and it can tear families apart yeah well, uh, uh, parkinson's is another one s- similar to that it's the yeah it's the never ending yeah. and the you know cancer that comes back multiple times and those kinds of mm-hmm. things it really tears especially adult brothers and sisters apart and it's it's irretrievable um after that's done mm-hmm. uh you know one person ends up with more of the financial load one person ends up with more of the physical load mm-hmm. or you know or the care or both what we were talk- talking about is the care load Yes. Um, and, and how people... Just say, say something to us about, about that whole caregiving role, because I thought that was really interesting, what you were saying about that. Is that people don't realize that they're caregivers. Um, they, it, becomes, it comes on very slowly, and it comes on very subtly. And so they may not realize that they're in that mode until they are... And, this, they're the sandwich generation. They're looking after younger, ch- their own children, and they're looking after their parents. Mm-hmm. But because of our aging population and how old we're living to, I have some clients who are in their 70s who are looking after their parents who are now in their mm-hmm. late 90s, yeah. even over 100. Mm-hmm. And they have never had a chance to retire. They mm-hmm. have never had mm-hmm. a chance. They're, they need caregiving, mm-hmm. and they're still caregiving. Yeah. So caregiving is when you are is defined as when you need more than five or you're giving care to another person for more than five hours a week. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't seem like an awful lot when you're just bringing mom or dad dinner, mm-hmm. when you're just helping them with the shower and those kinds of things. But it adds up. Mm-hmm. And we often don't look for training. We don't look for support until we're already drowning. 
because it's subtle. It creeps up slowly. And and different kinds of care. So we're, we're talking about financial care. We're talking about physical, looking after somebody's physical needs, getting them from A to B. But it's also the emotional care. And that right? probably is the biggest of all. The biggest of all and, and the one that we're least prepared for in many right. cases. And because the way our healthcare system is not working right now, uh, families are in absolute and complete crisis by the time that um, their their parent ends up in in residential care. So you generally need to be at home with full all the support that can be provided by the government, which is not much for at least one to two years before you're going to have a parent get into residential care. Mm-hmm. When you're working full-time as an adult child and you're, you're, looking at, you're coming home and you're looking after parents who, whose health is deteriorating um, mentally and physically because they do go hand-in-hand, hand, their, their health is really, really in peril by the time it's finished. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's time for us to start with one of your songs here. Okay. Take a quick break over to that. So we've got I'm Thinking Funeral for a Friend. <laughs> Fits with where we're at right now. Yes. So this would you like to tell us before we listen to it or after why you picked this song? Well, again, it's a bit of that amorphity. It's one of my favorite songs from my early, from my mid-teens. Um, big song by Elton John. And um, I don't even equate the name Funeral for a Friend. It's just a very powerful, <laughs> moving, move, moving piece of music that uh, can help raise my spirits. All right. Well, let's take a listen to this. Now, it is a long song that um, is actually a double t- double titled Funeral for a Friend, a f- <laughs> Funeral for a Friend, and Love Lies Bleeding. We are probably going to fade it out about halfway through so that we don't spend a whole, you know, ten. 50% of the time on this song. And because we didn't tell you what you're listening to, you're listening to CJSF. That's right. Essential Thank Conversations. You, All right. We'll be back in a few minutes with Connie Jorswick, and um, we'll dive more into this fascinating background she has. All right. Elton John, Funeral for a Friend. A f- Man, I can't say this. Funeral for a Friend, Love's Lies Bleeding. <laughs>
This is Essential Conversations with Luca and Rebecca, and our guest today is Connie Jorsvik. We just listened to her first song request, which was Elton John's, and I'm going to get my tongue tied around this because I have every time I've tried it so far. <laughs> Funeral for a friend, love lies bleeding. No, I got it! Woo! Yes. <laughs> All right. And while we were playing that... Um, Luca and uh, Connie started a quick side conversation. I was like, no, 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 hold on to that. That's really good. I want to hear this more. Um, Luca, you were asking the question, I believe, that was, um, what are some, how do we know when we need to start paying attention to our parents that maybe perhaps are getting into a space where they may be needing intervention or support or or what have you? And Connie, you had some ideas along those lines. Okay, well, I'm going to get to what I was saying in a second, but it is uh, often not there are health crises for sure that that and both of my parents luckily um didn't go through a really long period of time my dad ended up with a very bad infection that took his life my mom died 3 weeks after a diagnosis of cancer so there are things that take people suddenly and i think that those are actually more difficult than for families than the slow um progression into illness but mom was canning last week but dad was out in the garden last week and we don't see the frailty that goes on underneath our bones Um, and so it's a very big shock when suddenly a heart attack happens suddenly a stroke happens suddenly there's a diagnosis of cancer Um, and but for a lot of people it's a really long slow progression but there are tipping points and uh, there are often crises that happen that adult, older adults cannot bounce back from like younger adults could. So um, when you fall off the, your bike when you're 20 years old, you get back up, you, you brush yourself off and you keep on going. When you're 80 and you are running for the phone and you trip and you fall, that can be life-threatening. Um, and so it's it's those sudden tips over the edge that people have got to realize that this that we got we've got to watch this tipping point. If dad if dad has had one fall, is this going to keep on happening? And there are things that we can do to to slow that progress down. But when they're having a fall a day, when they're having two or three falls a week, when they are able to go to the store and then suddenly they can't remember how to get home when they are when they've been brought home by the police oh that's a big one um i leave stuff on the stove but when they're leaving stuff on the stove on a regular basis and um it's being aware just going hmm the problem is that there are not a lot of doctors who really can do the kind of testing that is needed the mini mentals and the MOCA exams where they can see somebody's progression. Everybody should have a mini mental and a, and a, and a MOCA test as far as I'm concerned when they're 65. I don't even know what they are. So okay. maybe there's a whole bunch of our listeners who don't know what they are either. So, so those are tests where they have you draw a cube. Uh, to remember three words five minutes later. Okay. Um, yep. You know, identifying a a tiger versus a rhinoceros versus an elephant, um, drawing clocks, clock mm. faces, and being able to tell what time it is. So, what when was the name of those tests again? Mini mental. Mini mental. And a MOCA, M O C A. It's the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. Okay. And those are really important to start early 
just like you would do a PSA when mm. you're you're a man and you you know to look at your prostate health, it should be something that people are starting to screen for at the age of 65 so they can mm. see when there's a deterioration. Yeah. It takes so you get it gives you a benchmark exactly. It takes a year and a half to two years to see a geriatric specialist here, mm. um, and there are fewer and fewer of them all the time. And more and more geriatrics. And more and more geriatrics. So we need to rely on our primary care doctors to be able to identify those kinds of things. Um, what I have discovered is that doctors are not willing to make somebody incapable or take away their capacity. And they take it away way too late. Um, so people often get themselves into trouble. And one of the first things that, we, that they find is that people are, haven't paid their hydro bills. They haven't taken care of the basic things in life because it's just gone too far. But as adult children, it's our responsibility to not put the blinders on, to mm -hmm. keep our eyes wide open mm -hmm. and see when those kinds of things are happening. Mm -hmm. The thing that we were talking about during the break was that that slow slide into um, into cognitive decline and and relying on family members and caregivers can lead to massive abuse uh elder abuse it it can hurt it can be a slap when mom is yelling too much it can be ignoring them and not changing their bed pads when when they've been incontinent but a huge number of the people who i deal with there's a financial component where an enduring power of attorney is put in being put into place and given to a family member and they begin to use the bank accounts like a piggy bank um i i see all the time where somebody's got a fairly good amount of money put aside either you know because of their property or um, if they sold their house, they could live extremely comfortably in a long-term care facility of their choice for the rest of their lives. And children, well, adult children actually say, but we're not going to spend that because that's my inheritance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, those are subtle forms of financial abuse that we don't really see. We hear the horrendous stories of people being locked in rooms mm -hmm. Uh, all day while children go to work, but we don't see those more subtle things where bank accounts are being emptied. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, you know we're we're talking about uh, um, knowledge and skill, mm -hmm. and and we're also talking about the emotions behind all of this, right? So. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that I've talked about with a lot of my friends who have o aging parents or who parents whose parents have died already is the um, how we as individual human beings identify ourselves and that as we age we may have to give up some of that identity yes so uh, there are many people who have been extremely independent all of their lives and all of a sudden now they're having to accept some help so not only is it difficult for them to get to that place of acknowledging that they need help but it's it's difficult for the helpers in their lives to volunteer the help without feeling that they're somehow diminishing that person and sometimes people uh, we're actually being conscious of dimin not diminishing that person, yeah. but some some some, ad some adult children just jump into the parenting parenting their parents automatically, yeah. and they start treating their their parents as children, mm -hmm. and that is where 
there can be a lot of pain and anguish for the for the parents. My brother, um, hopefully he's not listening. Um, <laughs> he he parented my mother, and she said to me, "I just hate it when he does that." Yeah. and they, and nobody does this out of maliciousness. They they do it because because they don't know any other way to go. Right? This looks like the way that fits the best. It's the thing that's within their capacity. They may even fall into it before they even realize that they're doing it. Yes. Um, and But it's an emotional thing. And and I, it's so interesting when we talk about death because really, until our hearts stop, we're actually talking about life. Exactly. Right? And so one of the things that I talked to you about yeah. before this was that um, I'm one of the few people who's in my group of business friends who is dealing with the pre-crisis, the pre-death kind of work. Mm-hmm. Nearly all of my clients eventually die, but mm-hmm. I'm, I work with them during the crisis, and, mm-hmm. and that's when the work needs to start. That's mm-hmm. when that first fall happens, when that first diagnosis of cancer, cancer happens. That's when those difficult conversations need to take place immediately. Mm-hmm. So when If some, they haven't already taken place. Yes. As a, you know, when I get old, this is how I'd like you to handle it. Right. Because some people do get that far ahead, but most people don't. Right. Yeah. And and it's that it's that gentle slope down falling going forward. And, and so one of the things that we didn't talk about, you know, that we, we kind of talked about is how do you have those difficult conversations with, mm-hmm. with your loved ones. And it seems to be 50-50 as far as I can tell mm-hmm. that the older adult doesn't want to talk about it at all but just as often it's the adult children who don't want to talk to or don't know how don't know how to broach it don't don't want to do the wrong thing Um, and there's often two people in in a couple that's dealing with it as well as perhaps siblings so now you've got it's more complicated right? right it's not you're not dealing about just one person dealing with one aging person Right. Right. Now now we've got teams. Right. Who don't necessarily function as teams. They don't necessarily communicate well with one another. They don't necessarily even have good relationships. Right. So if you had a difficult relationship before all of this starts, <gasps> just imagine what that stress <laughs> does to it, right? Well, there's a there's a gentleman who um it doesn't want me to be named because his business is already so busy, but he does counseling just with adult children who are having difficulty dealing with their their aging parents and the dynamics involved and it is he said is one of the most difficult times in life mm-hmm. because you've got a whole bunch of adults who've been dealing with their lives their whole lives mm-hmm. and suddenly are doing it realizing that they've done it quite poorly yeah. and how do they manage to get through that yeah 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 it's um i mean i feel like we could talk for another week about all of this because it's definitely it's it's going to affect all of us right it's in one way or another mm-hmm. it's either us or f- friends of ours or mm-hmm. or it's going to be us aging or i mean it can come at us in many many different different right. ways and i often get called in the middle of crisis mm-hmm. um i get called saying that mom or dad or brother or sister are being taken off are being threatened to be taken off life support in the hospital mm-hmm. and the family is not ready and willing to deal with that and mm-hmm. so they call me in to try and get them to stay on life support and um quite often i'm 
on the hospital side, on the professional side, mm. but it's just sitting down and having that really difficult long talk mm. with them that the doctors and the nurses and the social workers don't necessarily have time for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're able to invest that time. And there's right. a skill picture. for it, right? Because it's not just medical stuff. It's, yeah. the, it's the emotional stuff right. of, you know, facing mortality, mm-hmm. facing our parents' mortality and facing our own mortality through their mortality. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So there's a couple of things that you gave us a heads up about in your show and tell kind of area of the info mm-hmm. that we got from you before. First of all, you've written a, a book or you are writing a book. I'm writing a book. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? Because it sounds like you're basically trying to open the doors for other people. It's called Healthcare. Well, the working title. Who mm-hmm. knows what's, <laughs> what it's going to be when mm-hmm. Self Council Press is finished. But it's, right now it's called Healthcare 101, Navigating the Canadian Healthcare System. So I've got a pretty good handle on, on navigating the British Columbia healthcare system where we actually have the best legislation in the entire country. Um, it's nice not, to know. Not that we necessarily do the right things with it, but mm-hmm. the legislation is there. Mm-hmm. And so we have representation agreements that allow us to name anybody we want to to be our representative, be a mm-hmm. neighbor or a friend or, or a professional, or a professional mm-hmm. um, to be our representative. And uh, in the rest of the country, it's more difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. We have the only province where an advanced directive is a legal document mm-hmm. in the rest of the country it's mostly known as a living will mm-hmm. and it's it's isn't it nice to have those wishes <laughs> mm-hmm. um so we're we're pretty lucky so i'm going to be delving in trying to get all of that legislation right. from across the country mm-hmm. neat great mm-hmm. and you have recently begun as the national advanced care planning coordinator with Dying with Dignity Canada. That's Would you right. like to tell us more about what that role means? Basic, what we started with is uh, the British Columbia Advanced Care Planning Toolkit. And so I was in a volunteer role for the last year trying to put that together. Um, and I'm very, very proud to say that we're going to have the best advanced directive toolkit available anywhere um, so that people can just go in and tick the things that they want to rather than having to think about it. We have medical orders for scope of treatment in British Columbia that have been put in place, and so we've worked at putting those orders into plain language that the public can use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's so good that they asked mm-hmm. me to come on board and to, uh, again, get that legislation from across the country, find out what's really happening mm-hmm. in doctor's offices and, and in ICUs and those kinds of things regarding end of life and putting it all onto advanced care planning toolkits for the entire country. Which is a kit like that is fantastic for starting the conversation right and giving people sort of a framework right with which to work through the conversations so we've actually done an entire chapter on how to have those conversations how to start them a whole bunch of incredible resources especially coming out of the united states uh difficult conversations is an actual program in the united states um There are a whole bunch of, there are a lot of people doing this because we're seeing this crisis that's coming at us Mm. um, with this gray tsunami, as it's like, as it's being called. (laughs) Um, What an interesting name. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And we're at the very tip of it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's, I'm very proud. I'm extremely proud. It feels like everything that I've done this entire time has led to this culmination of both the book and the national 
advanced care planning coordinator. That's wonderful. <laughs> so you're moving where next? Because you're, uh, you've got lots of skills and lots of interests mm-hmm. and lots of hope and optimism mm-hmm. and not very much time. So I'm hoping that my business continues to grow and I bring on more navigators. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the the you know the function the difficulty is that nurses are not very big on being self-employed, mm-hmm. so that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do need, want more navigators. I think it's going to be absolutely massive. I want that piece of the business to grow. Mm-hmm. <coughs> my goal is to have navigators across the province. Mm-hmm. And the, but I want to work more on the public teaching part. This is the stuff that I public really awareness. enjoy. And public awareness. Mm-hmm. This is what is really floats my boat. Yes. yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, who out there would you like to hear from? I would love to hear from uh, nurses mm-hmm. who have at least five years' experience. Um, it any any kind of nursing because we need them in all areas uh, who are interested in being self-employed who are willing to take the chance um, who have a lot of backing uh, a lot of experience uh, with us uh, my team being able to support them mm-hmm. so they're not going to be going into it cold and I'm also looking for social workers who are in the hospital system because discharge planning is one of the biggest things that we do mm-hmm. and um, they're they're well versed in that area. Mm. Yeah. So if they want to get in touch with you, they can, what's the best way? The easiest way is info at patientpathways.ca. Okay. And we're tweeting this out, so um, if anybody wants to come in and, and follow that and take so that will take them to your website as well, right? Yes. Patientpathways.ca. Yes. Yeah, I sent a tweet out with yeah. the with the link directly yeah. to the site. So too. so um, I encourage all of you out there listening to take a look at the website and and find out more about how it's all working. Connie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're so welcome. This is I feel like we just Mm -hmm. scratched the surface. There's so many questions waiting to be asked, but um, thank you for ranging far and wide as you did with Mm -hmm. us today. No, you're very welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. (laughs) So, Rebecca, what have you got happening at the moment? Oh, my gosh. Um, what's happening right now? Well, I've got uh, space for another coaching client. I'm just, I'm holding down the fort. All of the things are moving and shaking. Life is always constantly evolving. But that's where I've got a little bit of room that I can that's share with you. That's where people. you've got a little bit of room. <laughs> and, you're, and you're still um, working with your housing yes, project? Yes, in a, in a bit of a pause point, because at this point yeah. of the year, the houses have kind of all been gobbled up by students who had just started yeah started there but it's uh, also semesters. a great time for anybody who's got a big house and yeah. is looking for an alternate use for it and would like to explore for them to get in touch with you yes, right? absolutely yeah. yeah and what's and happening for you i'm i'm taking on new um uh, some new coaching clients i have an opening for that at the moment and i'm busy redesigning my website and branding and i'm having right. a ball with the with the creativity of it um, and we're heading up to our fund drive for right. CJSF um, in October. Um, so just to give people a heads up that we will be coming to you and asking for your support uh, in about a month's time. Yeah. And until next time. I wonder what's around the corner. Essential Conversations is brought to you courtesy of Luca Halleck's Power Sorcerer. And Rebecca Mears, Certified Coach.
increase your awareness, expand your options, empower yourself. Luca can be reached at www.lucahallux.com. I light the fires that light a thousand more. Connect with Rebecca at catchingfire.ca. Happy, 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 boing, 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 bo